Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 6. The Screwtape Letters. Letter number two. We are family. (laughs) Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where David, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we are eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. So, David, welcome. How have you been? I've been well. I've been well. I'm excited about today's letter. Uh, So listeners will remember that last week we had on a guest co-host, Trent Horn. Uh, I'm very pleased to announce that his son has uh, now been born, made an appearance into the world. Uh, I'll include a link in the show notes to Trent's own podcast where he describes the circumstances under which his latest child entered the world. (laughs) And appropriately enough, the title for today's episode is We Are Family. And if you are of an appropriate age, you'll know that this is a song by Sister Sledge. Uh, I, I even pulled up a few of the lyrics. Everyone can see we're together as we walk on by, and we fly just like birds of a feather, I won't tell no lie. All of the people around us, they say, can they be that close? Just let me state for the record, we're giving love in a family dose. And I chose this title because this, this letter is all about church life. And the church is meant to be a family. We're meant to be these birds of a feather. We're meant to uh, have that love between us. People are meant to be able to look at the church and see, could they really be that close? But as we'll see in today's episode, Screwtape, he has a different plan for the church. One to actually drive the patient away from God. I I don't know if I should admit without, I didn't know this song, Sister Sledge. I just saw We Are Family, Family and I thought it meant, We are family. That's the song that came to my mind. My brothers and my sisters and me. That's right. This uh, the the bit that I quoted was just the verse. Oh, so for some reason, when you read it, it just sounds completely different. <laughs> like in the earlier episode when you tried to pass off a Taylor Swift song as poetry. Yeah, I remember. Who who recently? I somewhere read that my embarrassing David Copperfield. I wasn't the only one in the world that has had this recently. <laughs> I don't know, but I do know there is a movie coming out. Uh, I actually very nearly sent you the link, but I thought, no, that's cruel. I'm going to be nice. <laughs> Anyways, I think it was on Twitter. I think someone, maybe even at... Maybe my, maybe somebody on Slack mentioned it. That could have been it. There's so many sources now that people come into my life. I don't know where I hear this stuff. Yeah, and they've been quite mean about you recently, so <laughs> it could well be there. <laughs> uh, for those of you that don't understand the reference, uh, you need to go back and listen to the earlier seasons. Uh, when Matt discovered that David Copperfield is also a book, in addition to a magician that dated Claudia Schiffer. <laughs> and the one other thing you have to realize is my mother, for a brief period of time, listened to our podcast and came across that. And she, as she heard it developing and playing out the conversation, she said, oh, no, Matt. Oh, no, Matt. Please, no. Please, no. <laughs> oh, he did. He did. She knew she had failed. <laughs> she really did. <laughs> oh, but no, this, this is an absolutely classic letter today. And I think a lot of people who are C.S. Lewis fans will have, at some time or another, tried writing their own Screwtape letters. And will actually be interviewing someone who has a book of their own version of the Screwtape letters later this season. But this was the letter that prompted me to do it. Because I think Lewis could have spent much more time uh, at church with Screwtape. Because uh, I don't know about everyone else, but... Some of the worst thoughts that I ever have are usually when I'm in the sanctuary. You know, I want, okay, I'm going to, I was going to skip my little pre-chit chat because this was flowing into the letter nicely, but what you just said, um, some of my best experiences, and I know this is the same for you too, but we're about to talk about how church can be destructive um, in the wrong, when it's, when it's used in the wrong sense or when our mind going into it goes into the wrong way. Today, I had a really grace-filled experience. I've just been feeling pretty down and just felt like I, I needed to go to confession to a, a, in a very deep way, I felt like I needed to go. And yet I was too scared to go and just didn't, wasn't planning on it. And so in our Catholic faith, as it says in Corinthians, 
we don't want to receive the Eucharist in an unworthy manner. I wanted to take that seriously, so I was going to abstain and was just wasn't feeling ready to go as much as I felt like I needed to go, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And I went into a church I haven't gone into yet in Grand Rapids because I wanted to go to 8 a.m. service, get up early. And it was probably the only church I've gone to, maybe 10 of them in Grand Rapids, different ones, not church shopping, but um, all Catholic churches. But long story short, they do a confession every time before the Eucharist. Like during Mass, you can go to confession. I've never had that. And mm-hmm. it it's very more traditional. It's not a Latin Mass. We could tell this priest is more of that type of background. And long story short, it was the most moving thing ever. I, I, it's the first time I've probably cried in confession since the, well, actually what I'm going to share later in this episode of a moving experience. So I like bawled with him and just broke down and left there. And he told me to read the Passion of Christ account. I read John 17 to 20. It was so powerful and beautiful. John 17 is an incredible passage. But all this to say, going into church was the greatest thing this morning. I was feeling so down and God just literally made today the biggest God day ever because of choosing to go to the church that I chose to go to that I don't usually go to because I wanted to go to 8 a.m. It was the only 8 a.m. service here around me. And it was just a very grace-filled morning. Wonderful. So church can be good. (laughs) Church church (laughs) is usually good. Let me rephrase that. But anyways, all right, that's enough of the pre-chit chat. We like to share some of those things. But the quote of the week Speaking of church, there's we're going to be able to talk about the beauty of the universal church as it was intended, and a little bit sometimes how it wasn't intended, but can be manipulated by screw tape and wormwood. So this quote is the manipulated way. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune, or have boots that squeak, or double chins, or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Hmm... But before we dive into this chapter, of course, as listeners know, we are taking the drink of the week much more seriously. And this is the first time David and I are back recording just him and I for a long time. And there's a bit of a nostalgia feel to this because we've been on break <laughs> and they've been after hours, after after hours, after after hours. And David and I do those separately. So because of that, I like to do our favorite scotches for the big one. So as you guys know, Douglas Gresham interview, I do McAllen 12. That's mine. Well, David's is Lagavulin 16. So we're going to pull out the big gun, the Lagavulin 16. And that's what we're going to have today. And you have some notes, I see. Yes. Color. And this is just very true. As you're about to see, it's a very peaty scotch. It is full amber. It's not just amber. It is full amber. And then on the nose, which we're about to take a smell, but what it says is a sea spray peat smoke stings the back of the nose oh yeah that's how you know it's good (laughs) i mean i don't know the smell of sea spray but the peat smoke and the stinging the back of the nose very much so (laughs) i don't actually associate typically a sea spray with a peaty fire you know think about that for a second okay the body it says is full smooth and very firm so we're going to expect a smoothness or firmness as we taste this and then the palate which is we're about to experience a dryness like gunpowder tea, it develops the palate. Oily, grassy, in particular, salty notes emerge. Here we go. Ah, oh, so nice. Look at this peaty. I'm starting to really yeah. like this, though. See, when I was trying to introduce Marie to scotches, I kept her well away from this stuff because this is kind of an acquired taste. So I introduced her to scotches that I thought would be, you know, she, she would be more amenable to. She wasn't a great fan of them, and then I just carried on drinking my usual stuff, and then she started drinking the the Lagavulins and the Lafroigs, and she discovered that she really likes them. So that's how you know she's the one. <laughs> I love it. And I will say, too, what I really liked is on the tongue, it was very smooth on the front of the tongue. You do get the burn on the back of the throat, but not as it enters. And you mm-hmm. do notice the oiliness. As you start putting it back, there is a bit of a slippery feel. Genuinely, I'm not even just saying that. <laughs> Well, in your in your notes, it says the finish, peat fire warming a bear hug. I loved that. <laughs> and if people are wondering, a score of a 95 is is big. McAllen 18, $200, 250 a bottle is a score of 95. Well, I think we should probably toast with this now that we've tasted it. This is a big toast, which we probably should have toasted to Trent's newborn child, but we are toasting to one of our patrons. Don't worry. I toasted his child in the last one. <laughs> okay, good. We got it covered. We're toasting today Sam M. And Sam, this is inspired by the chapter, so this will make more sense as you listen to it. 
Sam, whenever dryness appears in the spiritual life and emotions betray your spiritual habits, may the Lord provide the grace to persevere and get you to the other side where Wormwood has a harder time tempting you. Cheers. Cheers. Okay, that's really nice drink. Solid toast. (laughs) I'll take solid. (laughs) So today we are going to be talking about Letter 2, which was first published in The Guardian magazine on the 9th of May, 1941. And here is my 100-word summary. In today's epistle, we discover that Wormwood's patient has become a Christian. After threats of punishment, Screwtape says that, like many previous converts, the man may still be reclaimed for hell. Screwtape tells him to use the man's own parish to lead him away from Christ by fostering in him disappointment in his parish, focusing on the failures of his co-religionists, whether real or imagined. Screwtape ends his letter with a warning. If the patient makes it through this period of disappointment, he will be much harder to tempt in the future. Bum, bum, bum. Okay, so let's talk through this letter. The the big piece of news at the beginning is that the patient has become a Christian. And Screwtape warns his nephew. He says, do not indulge the hope that you will escape the usual penalties. What he's doing here is he's describing the dog-eat-dog world of hell, which Lewis described in that longer preface that we discussed a couple of weeks ago. But then, despite the threats... Screwtape says that he's confident that this man can be reclaimed. He says, There is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. Can I say off to start, I know we're not supposed to think of these in chronological order. I like to think it's not a coincidence that Lewis made the second letter out of the book right off the gate that the the person became a Christian, the patient became a Christian, as a way for us to realize that that's when the battle's really going to begin. Because sometimes you think you became a Christian, and it's, oh, boom, we're all good to go. But I feel like that's very intentional of like, all right, now is when your attacks are really going to happen. It's sort of like when you hear somebody's testimony and it almost sounds like they're done at the end of it. So they spend all the time about talking about their pre-conversion and their conversion experience, and it's, and now I'm a Christian, and everything's easy and great. Lewis flips that on its head. Letter two, he's a Christian, and now the real battle begins. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. And now the real battle begins. Now, there's something in that last section that I read that I think is really important. He says... All of the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. Now, if you've listened to Brian McGreevy's podcast on Screwtape, this is the main lens through which he reads Screwtape now, the idea of habits. That throughout all of these letters, Screwtape is trying to get rid of good habits, which form virtue, and build bad habits, which build vice. Uh, But I, I think it also is worth pointing out that Grace builds on nature, that God's grace, when it works in your life, it builds on what's already there. And so whatever habits this man has for good and for bad uh, are going to be used by God and the devil. This is going to be perfect then, listeners, as we get to the, the final section, the unscrewing screw tape. I'm going to share a lot about my own experience and journey with that because I I think a personal example can always be helpful, and I completely agree with it. Habits are so important, and I feel like that is not emphasized enough in the Christian community, and unfortunately, partly because of the this, we don't like to obviously get um, too, too much into uh, theological divisions between churches, but the whole false debate between works and faith and stuff make it seem like habit building for virtue is somehow like an earning of salvation and i feel like it gets a bad rap when it's just so important in the spiritual journey for experiencing joy and happiness and peace and communion with god and and his grace of course is the foundation of all of that which is why i love that you said that and we are going to stress that throughout this but this is i'm excited i'll I'll talk more about that later but this is might actually quickly become one of my favorite letters because i think that habit lens is a beautiful lens to see everything through Mm. Now, Screwtape says that in the journey to reclaim the patient, 
that the church is actually going to be a great ally. But he qualifies what he means. He says, "Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her, spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners." That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. So when he talks about the church, he's not talking about the church spread throughout time and space and glorified in heaven. He's talking about the patient's local parish. He says, "All your patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic erection on the new building estate." And、uh, I think building estate is something of a British term that not all Americans will be familiar with. It just means a, a planned community, usually produced by a single developer. And so he's saying, rather than the glorified church, all he sees is this sort of fake Gothic church that's just on a modern-day、uh, housing estate. I want to take a quick aside here. It, it one of the most beautiful things I learned last year was the liturgy in the way that the earthly liturgy is part of a heavenly liturgy. And and、mm-hmm. when Lewis, I feel like that's what he was. Alluding to, but he obviously doesn't expand on it because that's not the the focus of this chapter. When he talks about that glorious universal church, we're partaking in that heavenly liturgy that we see in the Book of Revelations, and I love that. If you really think about it, liturgy is happening at every single second of every single day across the world with the different time zones, and when you enter into the earthly liturgy, you are being—I don't know if the right word would be transported. Or caught up, caught, caught up into the heavenly liturgy, and that's not communicated enough. I feel like what's communicated is you go here, either on a, the worst case, you're like, you just have to go here because you're supposed to do this for your duty. <laughs> I saw David's face change when I said duty. <laughs> He's a married man, but <laughs> still not any more mature. Yeah, but anyways, I just wanted to just. Make that bit of an emphasis. I was going to read a little from the Catechism, but it's a bit longer, so I think that's enough to just state that there is a really a beauty here that when you enter into church in that liturgy, it's drawing you up into something beyond yourself. It's pointing you to something beyond yourself in an incredibly beautiful way. And when you go with that mindset, what we're about to read here of these problems can somewhat start to go away because your perspective is changing. It's not. I'm a part of this church because of all these people. Of course, that's part of it, but it's also the people outside of time and who are in communion with Christ. I'm entering in with them as well.、Mm, yes, that church that scares the the, the tempters,、uh, spread throughout time and space and rooted in eternity.、Mm-hmm. Uh, at my own liturgy on Sundays, there's a song that we sing as we begin the second half of the liturgy when we say, "Let us who mystically represent the cherubim." The idea being that. We are joining with the, all the angels and those in heaven as we're about to celebrate.、Mm. It's 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 beautiful, and I think you're right. Fostering that kind of an understanding of what you do when you're going to church—that you're communing not only with those people that are in the neighboring pew, but with those who have gone before you and with the angels who worship before God's throne—that can be a remedy for an awful lot of the things that Screwtape is going to try and throw at the patient, because Screwtape wants to keep him very earthly-minded. And in our liturgy, we actually even say, "Let us cast aside all earthly cares," because the point is, we are now、oh. we're, 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 we're worshiping with with the angels before God's throne, ultimately, and that is where our mind is. We shouldn't be thinking about what we're going to have for lunch later. See, this is the best part about having Dave as a co-host. You can tee something up and know that there's some good stuff here, and he finishes it and brings it home. <laughs> now, Screwtape would obviously prefer the man. Not go to church at all. If you recall, when we went through mere Christianity in Book Two, he compared going to church to listening in on a secret wireless from our friends. He says that's why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. But in Screwtape's case, he knows that if he can't stop this guy from going to church, he's at least going to pollute the experience. And he describes what the patient is going to be experiencing as he goes on a Sunday. Screwtape writes, when he goes inside. He sees the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbours whom he has hitherto avoided. How many people <laughs> can relate to that statement? Yeah, I, 
Can I get an amen? <laughs> yeah, can I get an amen? The, the shiny little book containing a liturgy, which neither of them understands, which is so mm. true for so many people. And how many people are like, this is boring. I don't get this. Why are we doing this? This hymn is outdated. I mean, that is really what's being said here. And I think that shiny little book is most likely the book of common prayer. So the church that Lewis is most likely describing is a Church of England church. Uh, and and this shiny little book is their common prayer book. And I actually looked up the, the full title. It's quite a mouthful. The, the full name for it is The Book of Common Prayer and Administration of the Sacraments and Other Rites and Ceremonies of the Church According to the Use of the Church of England, Together with the Psalter or Psalms of David, pointed as they are to be sung or said in churches, and the form or manner of making, ordaining, and consecrating of bishops, priests, and deacons. Wow. Yeah, but it's mostly known as the Book of Common Prayer. <laughs> and it was originally compiled by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Kramer, in 1549. And the version which our patient would have been reading from is the 1662 version. I think that's why we're meant to think of it as the, the reference to archaic, mm. that it was, it was quite old-fashioned language. You know, the, think, think King James English. It's kind of like that. So Screwtape is playing up on the fact that this text is, is, is a little strange to him. And the, the shabby little book which he references is most likely a hymnal. Uh, there was there was a common one at the time called Hymns Ancient and Modern for Use in the Services of the Church. And he's saying that he's coming to this church and receiving two books and one of them he just doesn't understand and the other one is just is it's just got terrible terrible uh song lyrics in there. And that really mirrors what Lewis described of his own church going experience. Uh in God in the Dock, he writes this. I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. But as I went on, I saw great merit in it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education, and then gradually my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were just sixth-rate music, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. I was just going to ask you, um, I wonder what Lewis, he, he seems to be painting such a bad picture. I wonder what the positive of all of this, like, why does it have to be this way? And here's the answer. Here's what he says. It's peeling away his, his self-conceit. It's turning him outside of himself. It's putting him in a state of devotion. And we have the answer here. And you even notice in that section from God in the Dock, that he's pointing out that he's gathering with lots of different sorts of people in the same way the patient arrives at a pew and sees, you know, the, the, the greengrocer and all of his other neighbors, you know, maybe, maybe the patient is a little bit more well-to-do. Maybe he is a professor at a prestigious university, who knows? Uh, but he's a little horrified as to who he has to share a pew with. And I, I mentioned the other day that I was listening to a book by David Bentley Clark called Atheist Delusions. It's really about a history of the church and the change that the church made to society. And one of the things that he mentions in there again and again is the radical equality that Christianity preached. The idea that when people came to church, you had slaves and masters together, men and women together. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't the same hierarchies weren't simply preserved. Um, the Navarre Bible that we mentioned in the preface episode a few weeks ago that I've been going through with friends it talked about the section of uh, spouse and husband, husband and wife, and slave and master. And the, it wasn't trying to unpack all the theology, but it gave some context and historical context and pointed out that actually what that Christian was teaching, Christianity was teaching at that time, was radically equal relative mm -hmm. to, to society. And it provided some sources I can dive into deeper that I haven't yet, so I'm not going to expand on it further than that. But it's that same thing. It said it was radically in an equal, the most equal sense compared to everything else taught and preached at that time. And you can understand why the, the patient is challenged because he's, he's used to one kind of society, but then he comes to church where, at least how it's meant to be, it's, it's, it's a society with a very different sort of ordering. As Christ said, the last will be first, the first will be last. Which is what Lewis meant when he, I think, if we talked about in the preface of Near Christianity, the point of getting into one of the rooms, his nominations, is... If somewhat, as long as you're not just choosing it that what fits your will, the point of it is it forces you to surrender to an authority. And a lot of times these authorities are different than what we've been taught by the world. And the, 
it's that process of surrendering your will and aligning it to something else and unifying it, even if it's maybe not perfect teaching, that in its own self is a very positive development. It can at the very least foster humility. Yes. Screwtape then goes on and he tells Wormwood that they should draw his patient's attention to all these people who are sitting around him and whom he finds lacking in some way. And Screwtape says it actually doesn't matter whether these people in the pews next to him are saints, great sinners, or somewhere in between. He says that thanks to the genius of hell, the patient can be taught to pay attention to any minor annoyance. And Screwtape says, make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. And here he's referring to teaching that you find throughout the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Romans 12 as well, where St. Paul says that you are the body of Christ and you are individually members of it, that through, through your baptism, through your union with Christ, you are now united to all other believers. And what Scutate wants him to do is to compare and contrast. And I'm sure I'll mention this a few times throughout this episode and throughout this season, but that was very much my story. When my faith came alive, I started looking around myself and honestly just started judging everyone that was around me and finding the expression of their faith, in my opinion, in my view, very lacking. And that was basically what caused me to leave because, well, I wouldn't have put it like this, but I thought I was better than they were. I... I, I didn't have that last part of thinking I was better than them, but that was the thing that pushed me away from the Catholic faith. High school, I was never really into it, I guess, but in the nominal sense, I can't just do something I don't believe in. So I was in a nominal sense, and then I left it in a full sense. And it was because of just seeing people who would be like, oh, they're living like completely sinful lives in pride, arrogance, greed, all of it, you name it. And then like, well, I went to mass, so I'm good to go. I'm going to heaven. Or... You know, it's, it's, it was just as long as I'm doing the sacraments, everything is good. And that just bugged me and it pushed me away. It should bug you, but I would suggest it should bug you when you do it more than when other people do it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> At least in my case, when I eventually returned, I discovered that a lot of the people that I had weighed, measured and found wanting were actually great saints and I just didn't know it. The, the gruff guy in the pew on the right, who I thought was you know really grumpy and mean, Oh, he goes and visits the sick every Saturday. And when you actually talk to him, he's completely delightful and kind and thoughtful. But he didn't give me that initial impression. And so I had consigned him to the waste paper basket. Have you ever seen the movie St. Vincent? Yes, I have. I love that. <laughs> would you say, would you agree, highly recommend it outside of the very first 30 second scene? <laughs> yeah, I would say there are a few bits that you, you, you might not want to watch with your family. But uh, it, it certainly. Certainly a movie that tells you that you can't always judge a book by its cover. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have to look a little bit more closely. Yep. And Screwtape confirms that because he says it matters very little, of course, what kind of people that the next pew really contains. And this is where we come to the quote of the week. Provided that those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore somehow be ridiculous. And of course, this is entirely illogical. The fact that somebody has boots that squeak, has a double chin, wears odd clothes, can't sing very well, that doesn't necessarily follow that their religion must be ridiculous. That's just a non sequitur. Mm-hmm. However, this just confirms what Scrutate said in the previous letter that I went through with Trent about logic, argument, and modern people. You know, what do they teach them in these schools? It's definitely not logic. Well, and it's, I was going to bring it in earlier, but it, it we were just flowing past it. But when I, read it even in preparation for this the first letter I reread it because I wanted to make sure I knew what came before this it talks about using like the food to keep him off of thinking of universal it doesn't want him to reason universal or eternal type of things but focus on the temporal and I thought of Augustine higher order lower order goods like that's kind of what's happening here we described here the glorious church you can go into a liturgy and you can focus and orient your mind on an incredibly beautiful concept that when you are in that moment, you are touching heaven. You are being brought up, drawn up into the heavenly liturgy. Or you can focus on the squeaking boots. Your choice. <laughs> and this reminded me of a quotation by a lovely little book by Matthew Warner. It's called Messy and Foolish. 
And he wrote this. The great thing about saints, and here he's just talking about Christians here on earth. The great thing about saints is that they will not lose their faith because of a bad liturgical music. They can suffer bad preaching, small budgets, poor management, and every single one of the many falls we have in this hospital for sinners. They'll still be in the pews on Sunday, quietly winning the world for Christ, slowly transforming the church, recruiting more saints, and often fixing other problems in the process. That exact mindset, that's what Screwtape wants to scupper. I had put in here a section on the concept of the anti-climax. Like so much of this is about we we are building up this climax. You have this patient that's converted. He's maybe he's even been taught the glorious church, the universal church we described, and he's so excited, or she, um, well, in this case, he. <laughs> he's so excited. He's going to church for the first time, and it's anticlimactic. And I love how, do you remember, was it in Mere Christianity where Lewis writes that as well, that this is a very normal thing. You're learning a new skill. Let's say you want to learn the piano and you want to play like Beethoven, but you know what? The first couple of years are sometimes pretty dry or marriage can be that way too, or conversion is what we're seeing here. And he gives those examples a little bit later, actually, at least uh, of, of marriage. And he talks about learning Greek, but the point is that things don't necessarily stay the same forever. Uh, that's okay. Yep. But the, the, the ideas that are in the patient's head are important. And Screwtape even says that his conception of a Christian, it, it can be subconsciously attached to this romantic notion of people in togas. And you know, it's things, that he's, things that he's gleaned from passion plays and movies. And he says that Wormwood's job is to never let him realize this. And here we come to William O'Flaherty's main lens for looking at Screwtape. I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago. The idea of keeping things out of the patient's mind. We saw it in the first letter. You don't want him to think down certain routes. Don't try and argue with him. Just fuddle him. And so he says it's the same thing with the idea of what he expected when he came to church. He says never let him actually ask himself that question. Because as soon as he asks himself that question, he will start reasoning clearly. Well, of course he wasn't going to get people dressed in togas, looking, looking like uh, something out of the Ten Commandments. And if he does that, then he's protected against some of the disappointment that he's bound to feel and that Screwtape wants him to feel. Because he says, work hard then on the disappointment or anticlimax which is certainly coming to the patient during the first few weeks as a churchman. And this echoes something that we read in Mere Christianity when we spoke about faith. When Lewis said that uh, one sense of the word faith is holding on to things when you have changing moods, when your emotions blitz you. He said, moods are going to change, regardless of what you believe in. And faith is holding on to what you believed, despite your emotional changes. Yeah, that, that pre, that post-conversion, your mood is cloud nine. And I can't remember if it was in this letter. I think it's another letter. It's like that coming down the mountain. They actually warn you that at retreats, at least they did mm-hmm. at St. Bridget's. You're, you just, you ascended a mountain, you've disconnected yourself from the world, you've had an encounter with Christ in some circumstances, hopefully, Lord willing, and you feel that emotional high and you are going to come down from the mountain and make the decisions while you're on the mountain, on the high of what changes you want to make and then implement them because you won't want to make the changes once you come down from the mountain and the high is gone. And you don't want to come down in the first place. You're like St. Peter. Lord, it's good that we're here. Let's build tents. Let's live here. (laughs) Good connection. (laughs) Well played. Screwtape then changes gears here a little bit and speaks about the enemy, as he calls him, so God. And he says that God doesn't necessarily intervene to prevent the patient from feeling this disappointment that they are trying to foster in the patient. And he actually says that it's true in every human endeavor. And this is what we were talking about earlier. A couple that gets married and actually starts living together, it's quite different from those early stages of dating or the honeymoon. And likewise, a boy who grew up loving the stories from the Odyssey, when he actually sits down and starts learning Greek and tries to read the original, he doesn't have necessarily the same high. It's going to lead to wonderful things, but the experience is different. And, and Screwtape actually tries to explain why he thinks God lets this happen. He says the enemy takes this risk because he has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human verbin into what he calls his free lovers and servants. Sons is the word he uses, 
with his inveterate love of degrading the whole spiritual world by unnatural liaisons with the two-legged animals. Desiring their freedom, he therefore refuses to carry them, by their mere affections and habits, to any of the goals which he sets before them. He leaves them to do it on their own. Can I critique Lewis here a little bit? Certainly go for it. <laughs> David's like, I might push back though. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you were thinking it. Um, Lewis, I know, it, it's not even critiquing Lewis because the great divorce proves that Lewis thinks what I'm about to say, but I just don't think he expands it enough here. I agree. You know, he, there's What he's saying here is he leaves it to our own will to do this, to do it on our, to our own. But I firmly in my own personal experience, and I'll share a little bit later too, the power of grace and turning to prayer. I think of the lizard where it's, the, he didn't, the, the patient didn't do it on his own in the great divorce. That lizard, he said, let it go. So there was a free choice, but it was God's grace that was burning the lizard off. So I just like to make that critique because in my own experience, the times I've tried to do it on my own, which I don't think Lewis fully meant that here, I just couldn't. And it was only once I tried it, as we read Mere Christianity, as Lewis points out, and fail, 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 do we throw up our arms and realize we need God's grace. And that's through prayer. In my tradition, the Eucharist has probably been the number one way I receive that grace and the sacraments. And just wanted to make that note for listeners. I think that's fair. The only thing I would say is the leaving them to do it on their own. I think it's less about the fact that God abandons us and doesn't give us any grace and help. It's more about the fact that we don't feel like we're protected and safe and we're not being kept away from all things that are unpleasant. The point is is that we have to go through the valley of the shadow of death. We'll naturally be supported by grace, but it's not going to feel it. There's a quotation that we're going to get later in the book where Screwtape says that our, our cause is never in more danger than when the patient looks around at a world where he seems to be abandoned and still obeys. <laughs> it's the looking like we've been abandoned, but carrying on anyway. also wonder here if this is one of those examples of where we can't fully trust what Screwtape is saying mm-hmm. in a sense that Screwtape believes he's leaving it completely to be done on their own and maybe not realizing potentially some of the grace that God is providing along the way. Could be some of that. It's Obviously, we don't know all of those spots, but this is a good chance to remind listeners that we can't trust every word Screwtape says. I think it's a very timely reminder. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is where we come to the warning that Screwtape says that there's a real danger for hell if the patient makes it through this. He says, if once they get through this initial dryness successfully, they become much less dependent on emotion and therefore much harder to tempt. And this is a motif we're going to find out throughout the books. This, that, the, that Screwtape wants to play on emotion. Doesn't want to have anything to do with reason. He wants to tug at the way that the patient feels to steer him into a course of action that Screwtape wants. And in the last episode with Trent, we spoke a little bit about fasting and why these ascetic practices uh, of, of self-discipline are so important. It's so that we are in control of our emotions and not the other way around. And Sam M., this is where we got this from. This is where my toast came from, by the way. <laughs> and Lewis talks about this throughout his works. Uh, here's a passage I pulled from The World's Last Night. He writes, It is quite impossible, even physically impossible, to maintain any emotion for very long. Feelings come and go, and when they come, a good use can be made of them. They cannot be our regular spiritual diet. And we're going to come back to this in letter 8 when we talk about the law of undulation. Because it's, it's that idea. It's the idea that feelings come and go, and it's a matter of what do we do with them when they come. And as we like to constantly do, some of these bigger themes of Lewis's are played out through all of his works. And so we've talked about this before. We talked about this in Mere Christianity when he's discussing Christian marriage. And you don't get up and in front of everyone and say, I commit to feel a certain way for the rest of your life. Like that's not what you're doing. You're committing to act a certain way, to love, to will a person, not to feel a certain way. And he says that with love is an act of will, not a feeling. So this is a very Lewis concept, again, brought in here. Then towards the end of the letter, Scrutate points out that, of course, 
If there are real, rational grounds for disappointment in his local parish, well, so much the better. He says if the patient discovers that a fellow parishioner plays too much cards, or is tight-fisted with money, or extorts others, he says it's much easier to foster disappointment when the, when the flaws are real. However, there's one question that Screwtape says that the man must never be allowed to ask in all of this, and it relates to considering his own shortcomings and what this has to say about his newly found faith. Here's the question Screwtape says he must never be able to ask himself. If I, being what I am, can consider that I am in some sense a Christian, why should the different vices of those people in the next pew prove that their religion is mere hypocrisy and convention? This is what you call a self-mirror. This is, this is Lewis through screw tape holding up a mirror to us. You, hit the, the, you read those words and it pierces you. This is like Orwall. Or, yeah, Orwall in the mirror. Like this is the mirror. This is that happening right now. Because I read that and I think to myself, yeah, how often do I do that? And forget to look at my own life, how I call myself. I actually genuinely call myself a pretty strong Christian in the sense that I desire, I screw up miserably. But I know at my core, my desire is deeply to be in communion with God and my screw ups frustrate me. And I'm, I'm choosing a subpar life and I know that. I don't give the same benefit of the doubt to the others. I see doing the same mistakes as myself. <laughs> exactly. And that was me in my 20s. I, I looked around and saw a church full of hypocrites. And at no point did I ever consider the significance of my own failings, sins, and hypocrisy. Not, not once. <laughs> and funnily enough, Screwtape says, you might ask whether it's possible to keep such an obvious thought from occurring even to a human mind. It is, Wormwood. It is. <laughs> Handle him properly, and it simply won't come into his head. He has not been anything like long enough with the enemy to have any real humility yet. So again, we come back to the idea of virtue. The fact that he, he hasn't developed the, the, the muscles of virtue. He hasn't developed any real humility to prompt himself to ask that question. And Screwtape says that because he lacks any real humility... The patient hasn't really got a good grasp of his own failings. And he says that what he confesses on his lips about his sinfulness is all parrot talk. Uh, particularly with uh, the Book of Common Prayer, there is, a, there is a confession at the beginning. It's very similar in the Catholic Mass and the Divine Liturgy. We confess our sins to God. And he says that's just parrot talk. He's just repeating what he's been told. But he says that deep inside, he actually thinks something a little different. And this is kind of chilling. Because this really shows us our lack of faith. You alluded to that passage in Mere Christianity earlier, where faith is, in one sense, where we try and try and try, and we keep failing, 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 and then we throw up the sponge, as Lewis says. We give up. We raise the flag. We say, Lord, I can't do this. You must. And Screwtape says that while the patient may say this when he confesses his sins, he says, at bottom, he still believes he's run up a very favorable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted and thinks that he is showing great humility and condescension in going to church with these smug, commonplace neighbors at all. You know, I feel humility is not, <laughs> this is not a Lewis quote, <laughs> but humility is not thinking less of yourself but thinking of yourself less. Um, but what Lewis talks about too is it's, it's, it's thinking Properly, like I was actually, as I was reading John 17 and Christ is talking about himself, he's speaking in a way that seems, could come across boastful, but he was just being honest. This is me. Like this is, anyways, I'm going with this is, I don't have that issue. <laughs> as I go out through this, I always point out, this is me, this is me. This one, I don't. I was, I was thinking to myself, there are some times when I go in and in the beginning of mass, when we say, we do that prayer of sinning and what we've done and what we've failed to do and our faults and our grievous faults. I feel it a lot. And I don't think to myself, I'm just saying it, this is lip service or I'm better than these people. I think, man, this is, I, it genuinely hits me. And outside of the Eucharist, that moment can sometimes be where I bring some tears, watery eyes. It depends on what state I'm in, but I'll feel those words. You see, this is my sin. <laughs> this, this here is right me. <laughs> this here is me. And even the terminology that he uses there, a credit balance in the enemy's ledger. 
I would guarantee you, if you polled Christians, you would find them using language like that. The idea that, well, my good deeds outweighed my bad deeds. I'm, I'm generally a good person. This is the kind of language that they will use, which is basically saying that they can earn their own salvation and not that definition of faith that we referred to earlier when you throw up the sponge. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who have declared spiritual bankruptcy and throw themselves on the mercy of God. Much like the publican and the Pharisee, like the Pharisee, we like to point out to God all of the good things that we've been doing and want to take credit for it somehow, as though anything that we have hasn't already come from him. Yeah, uh, this, is, this is, I'm loving that we decided to save what I'll share in a second after we bring this chapter full circle, because about everything that you've now brought in is going to connect to everything I'm going to say of my own personal journey from the sponge throwing up to thinking it was some of my own doing to then hitting rock bottom and realizing, nah, nope, this isn't me. <laughs> I'm if left to my own will. It doesn't work out. So I'm excited. Well, let's then transition to our final portion of the episode and talk about screw tape unscrewed. So listeners, this is the section of the episode where we take the things that Screwtape has said with his twisted, upside-down, devilish logic, and we straighten it out into just to some simple do's and don'ts and maybe the odd listener challenge or two. What spiritual lessons can we get from this letter? I think the one that jumps out to me the most is the importance of habits and spiritual disciplines. Obviously, Screwtape was talking about it completely in the sense of using against our relationship with the Heavenly Father and keeping us in Screwtape's Father's camp, Satan's camp, but very easily we flip that on its head, we unscrew it, and we realize those same things, as was mentioned in here, once we get through that dry period and our emotions are no longer dictating our actions, but instead we act despite how we feel, it's very hard to tempt us. And as I will share my journey a little bit, I've been in that period as much as I've been in the period where my habits were against me. When they are for you, honestly, it's what we've talked about before when we say that Christian life is both super easy and super difficult. It really does kind of feel easy to some degree. There's other dangers you're worrying about, but when your habits are in your favor, it's amazing how those temptations really don't hit you too much. Yeah. I had a few very simple, straightforward ones. So one of my do's, go to church. Screw tape doesn't like it. <laughs> That's something to do. Focus on the larger universal church when you are at your parish, that it is both local but also universal, that it is here in time but also in eternity, that even if there's only three of you worshipping at that church on a given Sunday, you are still joined by the hosts of heaven. There was also a line early on when Screwtape pointed out that a lot of people at the church, they don't actually understand the liturgy that they're going to. So that's another, another suggestion I would say. Demystify your liturgy. A lot of the times we have questions about, well, why did we do this like this? What does this symbolize? Or any of the artwork or statuary or whatever it is that you have in your church. If you don't understand it, ask somebody. Honestly, a large part of my own spiritual journey has simply been looking around at church and realizing that there's a lot here that I don't understand. And so I just start asking questions. Yeah, I would argue in about probably 10 minutes of effort, I mean, 10 hours of effort of just studying a few things, you could probably learn the beauty of most of liturgy. I mean, mm. and I don't mean 10 hours might sound like a lot, but think of that over a few months or something. You don't need to spend hundreds of hours reading dozens of books to understand the power and the beauty of these things. You can get most of it through a few essays or articles or podcasts or Google search, and you will, it'll transform the way you see things. I would just say foster a holy curiosity. Yes. Just when you're at church on Sunday, if there's something there that you don't understand or doesn't make sense to you, go and ask somebody. It, it, it's like any Q&A section after any talk. Usually a lot of people have the same questions, but everybody is too afraid to uh, look like they are uninformed by asking a silly question. Mm -hmm. Honestly, that's how people learn. And if you're thinking it, I can guarantee you somebody else is. And a little practical, unrelated to the importance of habits, to keep it very practical, fast. Separate actions from feeling. I feel like the beauty of fasting is you don't usually feel like doing what you're doing, but that deprivation is training yourself they can even be non-spiritually related. 
cold showers in the morning is a powerful way to actually dissociate feeling with habit or feeling with action. <laughs> that will carry over, we know psychologically, habits beget habits. Start small, as we've talked about in other Lewis talks before of forgiveness, start small and then let it build. In the previous episode, I quoted the catechism where it speaks about ascetic practices like that. Personally, I hate cold showers, and that's the last thing I'm doing. going to do. Uh, <laughs> but they talk about it as uh, the, the school of self-mastery. Yep. If you can do something, even though your feelings say that you don't want to, then you're in control of yourself. Yes. Uh, my next do and don't, I would say they're really the heart of this letter. Don't focus on the sins of others. And do remember your own weaknesses. Mm. That as soon as you're starting to think about other people's sins, you're concentrating on the wrong sins. Notice how, this is why I love having this dynamic of two of us and we bring Andrew in to be in other episodes where some of us won't be on it. Notice how you mentioned earlier, your big sin sometimes is focusing on others. I don't really struggle mm -hmm. with that. So when you asked me what were the big things that jumped out to me, that didn't jump out to me as a big thing this chapter. But now that you say it, I'm like, yeah. What jumped out to me? Well, lately, I'm struggling with separating feeling from actions, and that's the big thing that I got from this. And so I read this from a very different lens than you read this chapter, and both themes are incredibly important throughout here. I like that. It's very true. And actually, probably, I said that's the main thing. I suppose that the other main theme in this letter is expect to be disappointed. It's like, don't go to church expecting that it's going to fulfill every need and desire you have. There's only one being in the universe that can do that, and that's God. It, church can be the means through which he, he, he communicates his grace. But you will come up against people who will annoy you, who seem downright anti-Christian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is going to happen. And I actually pulled out uh, something that I wrote a while ago to a friend of mine who was really struggling with the scandal in the church. And I it's probably about... A, two-minute reflection that I wrote to him. And I just wanted to read it out because I think if we, if we come to church knowing that we're going to be pulled up into heaven and, and celebrate, celebrating with the heavenly hosts, even if we can't see them, that can be incredibly consoling. But also if we go to church knowing that we're going to encounter human weakness, we can be much more forgiving and graceful when we encounter it. Here's what I wrote. Your constant refrain concerning scandal in the church suggests to me that this has been a significant issue for you. It's understandable. It is for many people. In fact, during the early centuries of Christianity, this was an extremely important and controversial question. Should those who denied Christ under persecution or who surrendered the Holy Scriptures to be burnt be readmitted to the church if they repented? Should those ordained members who renounced their faith be able to return to ministry? There was a schismatic group called the Donatists who said, Absolutely not. At the heart of the matter was the question, what is the church? The Donatists viewed the church as a museum of saints. However, the Catholic Church rejected this limited and narrow understanding. Instead, she said that the church was a hospital for sinners. She would therefore readmit fallen away Christians if they repented. As a consequence, the church often looks and smells like a hospital. The church is full of medicine nurses and doctors, but she is also full of damaged people and the walking wounded. There are often outbreaks of disease. It often doesn't look pleasant, but it is the best place to be for those who need healing. And for this, I'm grateful. Otherwise, I fear I could never be admitted. I like that. Very Pope Francis-esque of you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Don't let that go to your head. You're basically telling me that I should be the next pope. I completely agree. <laughs> I accept. <laughs> we'll see if the Holy Spirit accepts. So a bit is, is we're in this screw tape unscrewed section. A bit about my own personal experience, and it, it hit me. I wanted to save it to the end, but when it hit me as I was reading this was when he talked about the adult converts, and, but they can be reclaimed, and the importance of habits in that. This is when this hit me. And so in my when I really came back to my faith, and particularly the Catholic faith, was at a retreat in San Diego, and it was the one where I was pretty much on top of the mountain. Call it the fullness of my conversion. It was when I went from my head to my heart. I've explained this before, so I won't go into detail there, but it was when I went into a confession and burst out crying because I realized I was doing everything 
in my own sufficiency and I wasn't dependent on God and I wasn't surrendering to him. All my identity was in the world. And it was an amazing experience. And I was taught some incredible stuff, had a lesson on the lies of Satan and they gave very practical solutions. So I'm up on the mountain and it was genuinely on the mountain too. (laughs) And Whispering Winds Retreat Center, David will know where that is. And so as I'm coming down, I wrote a letter to myself of things I wanted to change in those habits. And that lesson on the lies that Satan tells us really hit me. And he talks about how you want to name those, bind them up and cast them out. I actually started implementing that practice into my life. We talked a lot about the power of the rosary is the new Ark of the Covenant and bringing that into battle against Satan. And so that was something for me, and obviously we won't unpack that theology, but for me, that was an important thing. And so I started really with the rosary and the Hail Mary whenever I was in time of struggle. Entered a church community that thankfully in this case was a very good quality one that formed me and edified me and then focused on theological study. And so I share that because I'm going to go into a brief here how it turned a bit later, but I put the habits in and it was amazing the connection and the encounter with Christ and then how it changed my life and how my habits and my desires and everything changed. I didn't desire to do the bad habits anymore. After I had formed the good ones, I experienced that joy. Well, fast forward years and as you guys know, and I've mentioned briefly, but New York City, when I was there for a year, was really tough. I no longer have the church community there. I have really no community there. And daily mass, sometimes I was going to daily mass, which was good, but it was slowly slipping some of these routines. And really, I think of literally Screwtape saying, we're going to try to turn some of these habits back in our favor. And so I'm lonely, uh, turning to TV way more than I ever have before, turning to in the evening sometimes drinking. And so you'll watch a movie, a stupid movie, have some drink, uh, distractions, and everything was starting to slip away. And it was actually becoming a very dark spot. It was almost as dark as my time in Oxford. And it really hit rock bottom actually into COVID. And so for me in COVID, uh, early April was when I realized this is, I, I almost felt gone. Like my habits have now fully betrayed me. And I'm still attempting to do I know intellectually the right things to do. And so I attempted another Exodus 90 because I was like, I need to reshift these habits. I need to get this back. I'm implementing the things I know I need to do. But I just kept failing. Honestly, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't will it. And now today, I'm nowhere yet back to where I was maybe three or four years ago that I was describing in San Diego. But I've never given up on that. And for me, the sacraments have been super important. And so confession, talking with the priest, receiving that grace, going to get the Eucharist. I've noticing the habits are starting to come back. Maybe I'm only 30% there, but I, I share that process and that journey because even as someone here, we're leading a podcast on Christianity. I struggle with the same thing here that screw tape is talking about. And I share that to know that there's probably others listening to this that are, that are struggling with that. And I used to pride myself in someone where, oh my goodness, I could will anything. I could literally will anything. And now I, I'm in the camp where I don't, I literally told the priest this morning, I felt like in a state of despair that I don't know if I can will anything anymore. And it was a powerful realization though of my dependency on God. And that's where I mentioned earlier that grace uh, that we need from Christ and that strength to bring him in to, to give us that hope. And the priest gave me a beautiful amount of hope. And actually encouraged me to take practical steps. That's why I wanted to share this in the Screw Tape Unscrewed. He talked about cutting off the eye and cutting off the hand. What are those things in your life? Whether if I'm watching too much TV or too much numbing stuff, how do you just reduce that? Maybe I leave that in the office, the computer. And so I don't have that temptation. He gave me some very practical steps implementing prayer. I'm starting Bible study. I've been doing it for three weeks now with a group of people loving it and building the community to overcome the loneliness I'm experiencing. So I share all that, not with much of a conclusion, but to share how habits helped me in the beginning, betrayed me, and now I'm hopefully on the way back to the right habits. And that subject of habits is going to come up again and again throughout this book. So hopefully I can allude to this uh, in the future. So remember this, because I probably will allude to my, my own journey. I like to always talk about how this stuff impacts me. Yeah, I think we're going to be talking about this again in letter eight. I'm looking down the titles I've given each of the letters. 
and that one's called Love Roller Coaster. So I'm pretty sure that's the one about the law of undulation. <laughs> this is where that should fit because I was on the highs, I've been on the lows, I'm on the backward upward trajectory right now. I've been in hope and despair and I've fallen and I've risen and <sighs> yep. Well guys, for such a small three page episode, we just got into a lot of good meat and hopefully you guys got a teaser to what is in store for us throughout this book. The amazing ways that Dave and I are going to apply this to our lives and dive into it. So as we wrap up here, we would love to encourage all of you guys to go to iTunes, leave us a review. You guys have been fantastic with that. And we actually love the comments. As you know, we read them. Please leave us a comment if you feel called to. It really encourages David and I and Andrew on this journey to read how this you guys are receiving this. If you also feel called as this ministry expands, we've added a lot to this and we continue to grow it as you've learned in the amount of episodes. If you feel called to support us on Patreon, we would be humbled by that. Uh, go to Facebook, Twitter, all of that good stuff. We really want to stress going to YouTube and we, those Skype sessions are now going to be packed rich with content in a way that was more so than last year or last season. And finally, if you love us, this and you just want to rep some of our merchandise. We have t-shirts and glasses on our website. You can go there and purchase some. Again, we don't profit from those, but I'm wearing one right now, actually, as we record this. And I love this teal color with the pine jacket. I did think you looked more handsome tonight. I thought that, that that was it. That was it. Was there a glory, like a, a gloriousness, <laughs> a glow to me? Of course, there was. And as we do this. We encourage you guys to join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.